fellow feasters in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your patience as we prepare for Season 7 of the Gospel Feast podcast. Our author and historian has been busily working on a very special book, Esther, Something Hidden, Something Revealed. You've heard the story of Esther, but do you really understand it? I think you will find this book illuminates things that you never knew were in the simple story of Esther. This is the Gospel Feast podcast for those that need a little meat after the milk. It's time to feast on the Word. Now, this is a special bonus episode of the Gospel Feast podcast. Now, we are actively prepping for Season 3 on the Book of Ruth, but we have had so many questions of late and comments about the current state of the world at large, and we thought that we would like to offer some thoughts and commentary, if indeed it can be useful to you. Read, What is Your Take on Current Events? Well, the Lord said that these were the last days. And if these are the last days, then there are signs that must shortly come to pass or have already come to pass. These become proof, if we're able to read the signs, that we are indeed in the last days and that the prophecies that are foretold will be coming to pass soon. I think the most important last day sign for you and I is the one that at a future time the door-to-door missionary work will end and that the Lord will begin to teach his own sermons to the world via nature. That is supposed to happen at the close of the half hour of silence. And the whole idea of silence was that there was silence in the heavens. So in other words, nature wasn't really witnessing as it used to, and that it was going to begin to do that again. This is the meaning behind the word Sabaoth. You'll read in the scriptures and in the Doctrine and Covenants that one of the Lord's many titles is Lord of Sabaoth. Many people read that quickly and think it says Lord of Sabbath, and he is the Lord of Sabbath too, but it doesn't say Sabbath in every case. In some cases, it says Sabaoth, and that's very important. I actually want to talk about that in great depth at some point. It is mentioned in the Gospel Feast series, so if you want to know more about that right away, you might want to start with the Genesis series, which is in four parts, and begins with Volume 7, which is about the earth prior to the flood, volume 8, which deals with life after the flood through Abraham's new commission and covenant. And that's very important because Abraham's covenant was new and everlasting, and it usurped the Enoch covenant that the world was working under prior to that time and is the one that the satanic forces still claim as their covenant. So Abraham's usurped that, and that's one of the reasons why they want the Jews and the and Israel dead. Uh, the next volume, Genesis and the House Divided, and that one deals with the separation that the Lord made between Esau, or Edom, and Israel. The Lord would later tell the prophet Ezra, who was Malachi, that the beginning of the end, as we understood it, or the setup for the end, really came at the rejection of the covenant of Esau and the acceptance of the covenant by Jacob, who became Israel. That is really, really important. And if you understand that, you can understand some of the machinations that are going on in the world right now. The Edomites are the basis and the core of the Illuminati that is still amongst us today. And the spark of that can be found in the separation of Esau from Israel. 
the last of the four in Genesis, is Genesis and the Messiah ben Joseph. And it talks about how the Lord was going to use the tribe of Joseph and specifically Ephraim, but also Manasseh too, for building a refuge for the return of his glory in preparation for the events of the last days or the great wedding. So anyway, that's all connected to this idea of the Lord of Sabaoth, which means the Lord of the hosts of heaven and specifically refers to the Lord of the planets. The Old Testament does say that the Lord had the ability to call the planets and they would say, here I am, what do you want of me? It's huge, and we're going to see a lot more of it as things unwind. But I don't believe it'll happen until the half hour of silence closes, which personally I don't believe will happen before the fall of 2022. But I have no way of knowing for sure. I do believe that the sign that the gospel would be taken to all the world has been fulfilled. And that's because in Eastern thinking, the nations are bloodlines. And we've said this before. They're not geographical borders, but they're bloodlines. And so what the Lord was saying, if you want to read it from an Eastern perspective, is that every bloodline of the family of Noah, and these are listed in Genesis, would have a chance to receive the gospel and that each would have a representative at the great wedding feast of the Messiah or the King. That's happened. There is no bloodline of Noah that has not embraced the fullness of the everlasting gospel and restored Christianity right now. So I actually believe that one has been fulfilled. And that's the one that usually gets thrown in our face when people say, well, you know, I think that one's fulfilled. The other two that I think are very important and worth watching, because the Lord said to watch the signs, are that the elect might be deceived, if possible, and also that the Lord would withdraw his Holy Spirit from man. Okay, so that's one thing, but what would that actually look like in our day-to-day life? I do believe that the warning from our current church leaders that we need to seek personal revelation and seek the Lord's voice more clearly in our own lives for ourselves is directly connected to this idea that the Lord said that in the last days, towards the end, even the elect might be deceived, if possible. Anyone who has a personal relationship with the Lord and the Holy Ghost is much less likely to be deceived. The Lord has said, my sheep hear my voice. And I think we're getting to a time when we have to hear his voice. President Kimball used to say in his day that it was okay to lean on the testimonies of others until we gained our own, but that the day would come when we could not do that, that we would have to have our own testimony because leaning on another's would not work. I think, again, that was his way of saying, the elect are going to be set up for some deception, if possible, and if they have the ability to hear the Lord's voice, they won't be deceived. It's my opinion. Okay, good. This is connected to the Lord removing his spirit from man. That comes from him. He's the one that said he was going to withdraw his spirit from man and that his spirit would not always strive with man. I know a lot of people think that the Holy Ghost and the Holy Spirit are actually the same thing. But what are they? Could you explain to us the differences? You can't confuse the spirit with the Holy Ghost. They are not the same thing. Joseph Smith explained it best because I have to admit I was confused. I would be reading the scriptures or in seminary classes or things, and there was always sort of this very loosey-goosey kind of, this is the Spirit, this is the Holy Ghost. It was really confusing. And I know a lot of people are confused about it because they ask me about it all the time. It wasn't until Joseph Smith that I learned and understood it. The prophet said it very clearly. He said that the Holy Spirit is the force that moves through all things and through the universe, and that it is the conscience and the moral and the law-giving that all things understand. 
In a sense, it's a free gift. Now, people can reject the Holy Spirit and not listen, but it's a free gift that's given to all. It goes deeper than that. The Holy Spirit is the Lord's will. And so, as the Creator, it's His law or His reason why things obey Him. For example, why is the sky blue and the grass green? Because the Lord willed it, and His power and His Holy Spirit keeps it in place. Why do cats meow and dogs bark? Why do humans have five fingers but cows have a hoof? It's all because of the Lord and the Spirit of the Lord that runs through all things. All the laws and morals that we understand, and all creation understands, is connected to the Spirit. Now, the Holy Ghost is actually a male personage, and he's one of our spiritual brothers from before. Now, he can touch people and come and go, but only those who have been confirmed after baptism are given the right to have him enter you permanently. You can think of it in Eastern terms as just as your body is connected Easternly to the greater body of Christ, we've all taken Christ's name upon us as restored Christians, and so then our body is part of the body of Christ. This is what Paul is teaching. Just as we share one symbolic body, that same symbolic body is filled with one spirit, and that spirit is the Holy Ghost. And just as your body is a temple, and the spirit can come into you and make you holy inside, so is it true that in the Lord's physical temples that dot the earth now, the Holy Ghost can come and sanctify in that holy space. So it actually all fits together really well. Okay. But they're not the same thing. So one of the signs of the end is that the Lord is going to withdraw his spirit from humanity. That means that some of the basic rules, morals, and understandings that flow through all things, particularly through man, is going to be removed. Mm. That's going to mean that some things that you and I know are intrinsically right or wrong as humanity are not going to be so known unless we rely on the Holy Ghost. Again, I think this fits with what our current leaders are telling us. We've got to learn to hear the Lord at this point, or we're going to be deceived. So that's my concern. That's interesting. As opposed to, say, putting your faith in the arm of flesh. Well, it basically comes down to fear versus faith. Faith is the first principle of Jesus Christ. It is faith that leads to repentance, and repentance that leads to baptism, and baptism that leads to the confirmation, which is the gaining of the Holy Ghost as a personal companion and witness. The Lord has said that it is impossible to please him without faith. And the idea is his kingdom is based on faith. Now, faith gets defined in our day as being a belief, but that's not really accurate. Joseph Smith said that you cannot separate faith from action. And so this is what the Bible is saying when it says that faith without works is dead. If you don't do something with the faith, or more specifically, you don't do the good works required of you because you have faith, that they will mean something in the future, you don't really have faith. So sometimes we teach the kids, and I know I've said this before, that faith is knowing the sun will shine. Well, no, it's not really. Faith is knowing that if you go into the waters of baptism with someone having the authority to do it, that your sins will be washed away. Now that's faith, because it's connected to the action. Faith is knowing that if you trust the Lord in certain things and do what he says, he can heal you. This is why the gifts of the Spirit are connected to faith. If you have the faith to be healed, you can be. If you have the faith that the Lord will give you discernment when you need it, you will have it. If you have the faith to go through the temple and be sealed in Abraham's covenant, you will have eternal life and you will have eternal family. That's how it really works. Now, Satan based his kingdom on fear. And this is really important to know. 
If you ask a Luciferian about their communing with their god of the world that we call Lucifer, they will tell you that their god is actually a schizophrenic. And in being a schizophrenic, you never know when you place your phone call, as they would say, or prayer, you never know who's going to answer the phone. They'll tell you that if Lucifer picks up the phone, that the communion will be full of light and brilliance and pity and, and empathy. And I understand that you are trying as hard as you can, but things don't always work out the way they should because there's these stupid Christians and whatever. They're, it's sort of a, of a narcissistic, sort of loving sort of experience. But if Satan picks up the phone, they claim it is pain and screaming and yelling and blaming and why didn't you do it and you're the reason things aren't working the way they're supposed to. Why don't you listen to me? It's schizophrenia. He does that partially because he is a schizophrenic, but also because it creates fear. He has power when he can create fear in people or in the world. So that's also one of the signs of the last days is that we're going to have to fight fear with faith. I find the current situation that the world is in very interesting. We are in a state of fear. We believe that there is this invisible enemy out there, this disease, that's going to get us. And we are fearful. And we have to do certain things, which in a sense are rituals, much like the poor OCD person or the poor schizophrenic has to do. If you wash your hands, the OCD person believes, the mysterious germs that they gained from touching the doorknob have now been ritually purified find it extremely interesting. The Lord has said that even a mustard seed of faith can move a mountain. That's because faith and fear cannot exist in the same place. A person can be full of fear, and the moment that they exercise some faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that fear melts away like wax before the sun. Fear and faith cannot exist in the same place. Didn't I read in one of your books about Joseph Smith's great day of healing during a pandemic they had in those days? I do have some stories that I think might be really useful in helping to build some faith and perhaps even reconnect us with our heritage. The Prophet Joseph Smith understood all of these things, and I'm sure that if you were to stop and ponder on your own family and own history, you could also recount stories of when your faith and your loved one's faith healed people. One of my favorites comes from Zion City. Early on in church history, when the saints were trying to build Zion City, which was something they were unable to do. This particular story comes from my book, Tell Me the Story of Joseph, and is chapter 10 in Zion City. Let's share it together. Let's do it. The prophet Joseph had not been in Kirtland long when the Lord gave him two important revelations. One was the location of the long-awaited city of Zion, and the other was the command to build a temple in Kirtland. The plan for Zion City was different from anything seen on earth before. It was to be a city laid out in a grid pattern in which each city block was 10 acres square. In the center were three blocks reserved for church use. Two of the blocks were to contain 24 temples, two for each of the 12 tribes of Israel. The design was ingenious because in most frontier towns, families lived miles apart. It was a very lonely life, especially for the women and children. The Lord's plan for Zion City placed all the homes on half-acre lots, close together, and the farms on the outskirts of town. This way children could attend school in town, Women could interact and work together, and the men could enjoy the company of the community after work. The plan was also to stagger the houses in such a manner that no two homes had front doors facing each other. This gave the community more of a sense of privacy. Joseph thought this was wise since he worried that so many of the women living close together might waste their time gossiping about one another. 
Oh. This wonderful city of Zion was to be the home of those who had clean hands and a pure heart. When Jesus returns to the earth, he wants to live with people who do good things and have pure desires. We can be that people. At the same time that Zion City was being planned in Missouri with its 24 temples, a single temple was being planned in Kirtland, Ohio. Now, this may seem a little strange when you stop and think about it. Why would the Lord want the saints to build 24 big temples in Zion City and still want a smaller temple to be built in Kirtland? It was for a very wise purpose. It is important that you never forget that while the Lord, His modern prophets, and the saints are working hard to build up the kingdom of God on earth, the devil is also busy trying to ruin everything. The devil knows that once the kingdom of God is strong enough, his kingdom will be overthrown. The devil was determined to stop Zion City and her temples from being built. Unfortunately, the early saints called upon to build the holy city were not righteous enough to stop him. However, the Lord knew all of this beforehand. And so, while Satan was busy trying to stop Zion from being built, the Lord was quietly building a temple in Kirtland. It is hard to fight a war on two fronts, even for Satan. When Joseph and some of the brethren from Kirtland arrived at Independence, Missouri, it was a very backward place. A short time after arriving, the prophet Joseph took an axe and cut a path through the thick saplings until he found just the right spot. Then he set up a stone and stripped the bark from a section of a large tree nearby. He carved the letter T for temple on the tree's south side and the letters Z-O-M on the east side. The prophet said that Zomas was an ancient term for Zion City. This was to be the spot for the first of Zion's temples. During the dedication ceremony of the land, the prophet read the 87th Psalm. The Lord loveth the gates of Zion. Glorious things are spoken of thee, O city of God, and of Zion it shall be said, The highest himself shall establish her. God himself would establish her. These words would later ring in the saints' ears. After Joseph set up the beginnings of Zion City, he returned to Kirtland. While there were many persecutions, both in Missouri and in Ohio, there were many happy times as well, and many new members joined the church. It was during these Kirtland years that many important revelations and commandments were given to the church. Much of the happiness and good health that you enjoy today is because our Latter-day Saint ancestors listened to the Lord and taught their children to obey His commandments. The most famous of these is the Word of Wisdom, now found in section 89 of the Doctrine and Covenants. The Word of Wisdom is one of the greatest gifts that God has given us in these last days to make us free from many of the diseases which cause so much suffering on earth. The better life we live, the better free agent we become. This also gives us more time to prepare to meet God, something we all need. The saints had a terrible time building the temple in Kirtland, but during the same time, the saints in Missouri were having an equally difficult time building up the city of Zion. Many great names that you'll remember were there, Edward Partridge, W. W. Phelps, and others. The persecutions and problems in Missouri became so great that on the 5th of May, 1834, the prophet and nearly 100 men started to march from Kirtland to Missouri. By the end of their journey, they would march about 900 miles in just three weeks. Their mission was to protect the saints in Missouri and encourage the governor there to restore the saints' property, which had been taken illegally by the mobs. By the end of the journey, the militia would grow to 204 men. The prophet organized them into companies of 12 men each. Ahead of the group, a man marched with a white flag bearing the word peace in red letters. As they passed through the state of Indiana, 
they had to cross some very bad swamps. They had to attach ropes to the wagons to pull them through. Joseph was always first in line, pulling on the rope in his bare feet. Many interesting and miraculous stories took place during the March of Zion's camp, and these are included in my book. But if there was one lesson the Lord wanted the elders of Zion's camp to learn, it was to trust him. Many of the brethren were faithful, but many were not. Those that were not grumbled and refused to trust in the Lord's mighty power. Toward the end of their march, the camp stopped to repair their wagons between the forks of the Fishing River near the towns of Richmond and Liberty, Missouri. Seeing that the Mormons were trapped by the steep banks of the river, a mob of 300 took advantage of the situation. Five men representing the mob rode into camp and swore to kill the prophet and all the Mormons. Heber C. Kimball recorded what happened next. Soon after these men left us, we discovered a small black cloud rising in the west, and not more than twenty minutes passed away before it began to rain and hail. All around us the hail was heavy, some of the hailstones, or rather lumps of ice, as large as hen's eggs. The thunders rolled with awful majesty, and the red lightning flashed through the horizon, making it so light that I could see to pick up a pin almost any time throughout the night. The earth quaked and trembled, and there being no sensation it seemed as though the Almighty had issued forth his mandate of vengeance. The wind was so terrible that many of our tents were blown down. We were not able to hold them up, but there being an old meeting house close at hand, many of us fled there to secure ourselves from the storm. The mob came to the river two miles from us, but the river had risen forty feet, and they were obliged to stop without crossing over. The hail fell so heavily upon them that it beat holes into their hats, and in some instances even broke the stalks off of their guns. The horses, being frightened, fled, leaving the riders on the ground. Their powder was wet, and it was evident that the Almighty had fought in our defense. The next day the camp arrived at Liberty, Missouri, but the prophet decided not to enter the city. The prophet told both the camp members and the officers from Missouri that their purpose was only to assist the persecuted saints. They had no intention of injuring any of the Missourians, nor starting a war. The officers were satisfied with the statement, but several of the brethren were not. They claimed that they would rather die than return home without a battle. Joseph told them that due to their disobedience and lack of humility before God, a number of the camp would die like sheep with the rot, and that there was nothing he could do to help them. When the sheriff arrived, Joseph proposed that both the saints and the officials of Missouri choose six men to decide the course of action for the suffering saints. However, the Lord had another idea. He revealed his will to the prophet in what is now section 105 of the Doctrine and Covenants. The Lord was not pleased with this plan, and the grumbling warlike attitude of many of the men in Zion's camp. Zion was not going to be built and argued over by a committee, and it was not going to be a city of blood. The Lord reminded the saints, For behold, I do not require at their hands to fight the battles of Zion. For as I said in a former commandment, even so will I fulfill, I will fight your battles. We must remember this. Zion is the Lord's, and he will fight for her. It is not our job to negotiate Zion's needs. A few hours later, a severe outbreak of cholera hit the camp. Joseph and Hiram tried to administer to the suffering men. But as Joseph said, I quickly learned, by painful experience, that when the great Jehovah decrees destruction upon any people, and makes known his determination, man must not attempt to stay his hand. As a punishment for trying to intervene, Joseph and Hiram found themselves immediately seized with cholera themselves. They prayed to God to spare them from the awful pain. 
Hiram said. The disease immediately fastened itself upon us, and in a few minutes we were in awful agony. We fell on our knees and cried unto the Lord that he would deliver us from this awful calamity, but we rose worse than before. We kneeled down the second time, and when we commenced praying, the cramp seized us, gathering the cords in our arms and legs in bunches and operating equally severe throughout our system. We still besought the Lord with all our strength to have mercy upon us, but all in vain. It seemed as though the heavens were sealed against us, and that every power that could render us any assistance was shut within its gates. Joseph and I then kneeled down the third time, concluding never to rise to our feet again until one or the other should get a testimony that we should be healed, and that that one who should first get the intimation of the same from the Spirit should make it known to the other. After praying some time, the cramp began to release its hold. In a short time, Hiram sprang to his feet and exclaimed, Joseph, we shall return to our families. I have had an open vision in which I saw our mother kneeling under an apple tree, and she is even now asking God in tears to spare our lives, that she may again behold us in the flesh. The Spirit testifies that her prayers, united with ours, will be answered. Oh, my mother, Joseph said, how often have your prayers been the means of assisting us when the shadows of death encompassed us? The attack lasted four days. In the end, it left 68 sick and 14 dead. The cholera that started in the camp soon spread over the whole country. As the men marched home, they saw all the various towns affected with it. It continued to spread eastward, and according to Edson Barney, was the source of the great cholera epidemic of 1834. Although many criticized the prophet for the apparent failure of Zion's camp, the Lord, however, said it best. It is expedient in me that they should be brought thus far for a trial of their faith. So, from this incredible story, we learn that prayer can heal, even in the midst of a cholera pandemic. There are many more wonderful stories about this in the book, but I want to move forward to Nauvoo. In the end, we lost Missouri, and we lost Ohio. But the terrible trials the saints suffered in Missouri did not go unnoticed by the citizens of the state of Illinois. They welcomed our people to the state. Many of the saints found friendship in and around the town of Quincy. Brigham Young led the exodus from Missouri to Illinois, since our prophet was still imprisoned in Liberty Jail at the time. It was good practice for Brother Brigham, and he would later say that his experience helped him better organize the saints' exodus into the Salt Lake Valley years later. Once Joseph was able to get out of Missouri, he joined his family in Quincy. The prophet was only in Illinois a short time when he made plans to build a new refuge city for the saints. He chose a large swampy farm with a few buildings on it along the Mississippi River. It was known as Commerce, Illinois, but the prophet renamed it Nauvoo, an ancient Hebrew word meaning beautiful place. It was a prophetic and hopeful name for a dirty old swamp, but it was the best the poor saints could do. Oh, that's very interesting. Okay, Reed, we are running a little short on time, so let's save that for our next podcast. We hope everybody will join us for part two, and uh, until next time, may the Lord Jesus Christ continue to be with all of you. Thank you.